let's get agreement that this is a strategic priority. That area of alignment and synergy can be very Looking important. The future, we're committed to expand valuation. time, there's still progress that needs to be made. This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. My name is Kelsey Waddell, and I am the Senior Editor of Healthpayer Intelligence and Multimedia Manager for Extelligent Healthcare Media. Out of all of the value-based care models, the global capitation model is by far one of the riskiest for providers. In this model, organizations receive a single, regularly scheduled payment that covers the services that that provider delivers. Dr. Michael Weiss, Vice President of Population Health for Children's Hospital of Orange County, or CHOC, is joining us today to explain why CHOC decided that this was the right model for their Medicaid pediatric services and the challenges and benefits of that approach. Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for coming on today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Kelsey. So let's start out from the very beginning. I'd love to hear kind of how this collaboration between Chalk and CalOptima got started. When did you first sign a contract? And then what have been some of the milestones since then to just sort of set the baseline for us? Yes. So I know our audience is nationwide as well as potentially international. And I'll set the table by saying California has always been somewhat at the forefront of looking at value-based payment and, and managed care. When CMS came out with their model a number of years ago, looking at the continuum of value-based payment with capitation all the way at one extreme, many of us in California had already been doing capitation for decades. So I'll share with you that I've been part of this program now for about eight or nine years as a leader, as a provider, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 years. But believe it or not, this collaboration on capitation actually started over 20 years ago. And what it really evolved out of was what value-based payment has itself evolved out of, which was limited resources, lots of work that needed to be done, and a need to use those resources in a coordinated fashion to be able to provide the quality of care necessary for our populations, understanding the restraints of the cost. So it, it really has been around for quite some time, and it's good because we've been able to evolve the model over many years. We started with a population patients, just Medicaid patients. And in California, we call it Medi-Cal. The population was in the hundred thousands-ish at that point. And the evolution of this, just for our group, is we now have 160,000 Medicaid children that are under this global capitation model with our program. Thank you. And so what drove the decision to go into a global capitation model, especially since that kind of model is attended by a lot of risk? How did you make that decision to go all in? Yeah, you know, first of all, Kelsey, in all fairness, I wasn't the decision maker 24 years ago. But uh, having been in this community practicing PEDS for 30 years, we were doing managed care and, and capitation in the commercial population as well. And so the doctors, you know, part of the battle is getting the doctors to understand what capitation is all about and what their role is in capitation. And I think we had a head start on that because it was pretty uh, ubiquitous at that point. It was not uncommon for a, a practicing pediatrician or family medicine or, you know, any doc for that matter to have a decent population of commercial capitated members, as well as this Medicaid population of capitated members. And really the thing that allows you to go into this with some semblance of confidence is really two things. Number one is data. You really have to know your population. And we felt pretty confident that we knew this population. We had historic spending 
We had risk adjustment. We had you know, a pretty good handle on what the cost of care was for this population. And then number two was really the care model. And you have to have the chassis for caring for those things that are not necessarily medical, such as the social determinants, which are now obviously a very big deal in healthcare, to be able to handle transportation, to be able to handle food insecurity, housing, those types of things. And having a pretty good handle on all of that gave us a, a good semblance of confidence going into this. That makes a lot of sense. So then you already kind of touched a little bit on one of the challenges being promoting understanding amongst doctors about their role in all of this. And I'd love to hear more about that. I'd also just love to hear any other challenges that you faced when you were implementing this model. Yeah, the first and foremost, I think for anyone listening who is probably scratching their head and saying, holy cow, how do you do that? Because we go to a lot of meetings and we talk a lot about this and people say, holy cow, how do you do that? (laughs) It's a process. So it doesn't happen overnight. The 24 years that we've been doing this has been an evolution. We certainly were not very good at it at the beginning and have gotten a lot better, but still have a lot to learn. So that's number one is it's, it's an evolution. It's not a flipping of the switch. Number two, there are really three categories that I would say would pose challenges. So the first category, which I talked about a moment ago, is data. You really cannot go into this with the attitude of, well, I kind of think that our cost of care is X, right? Mm -hmm. You have to go in with that best opportunity to really estimate your cost of care. Because as we'll talk about, I think in a few minutes, estimating that capitation payment has to be based in fact to the best of your ability. In the data, there are so many things in the weeds that you have to be aware of as well, such as how you versus a health plan may price a claim, right? So I may provide a service and that service bills out at a certain amount of money and I get paid a certain amount of money that's going to be much less than what I bill it out as. The health plan may look at that claim and price it very differently than I do. So my actual cost of care may be very different than the perceived cost of care by a health plan. So there's a lot of reconciliation that one needs to do based on different codes. And it's very, very tedious work for actuaries and finance people way out of my league as a pediatrician. But you really have to dig deeply into the finances to be sure that you're getting down to the right number. The next category is, I also alluded to earlier, the care model. You cannot do this without the support services to be able to make it happen. So managed care, especially global capitation, is really very, very much suited for pediatrics because we were, you know, at the forefront of the patient-centered medical home, which is really all about primary care being the quarterback, having the wraparound services of care coordination, social work, pharmacy, all the different ancillaries that can help to support the patient but also offload the physician from having to do these things that are non-reimbursable services. So building that chassis in advance of jumping into a contract is extremely important. There are ways to do that with different payers. Now, one of the models that we see out there on this glide path is paying an advanced care coordination fee Hmm. so that organizations and practices can actually invest in these wraparound services to start to build that chassis prior to taking that full risk. And then the last category on this is really the culture. And that cultural change is not only at the physician level, but it's also at the patient level, helping patients to understand what this is all about. 
helping physicians to understand that while they're taking a global payment for seeing a patient on a monthly basis, and if they do the math, there may be a handful of patients where if they look at the fee-for-service equivalent of the work they're doing for that patient, the capitation doesn't cover it. There's also a population of patients on the other end of the spectrum who are not using services that they are getting paid for. And then if you align incentives appropriately, which we can talk about later as well, there's on the back end the opportunity to recoup funding that then makes up for any deficits that would occur. So it's big cultural change as well. That makes sense. And I think also we talk a lot on this podcast and on our sites about the cultural change in the industry as well on a broader level that probably will help fuel some of the more kind of on the micro level with individual practices as well. We might get to that in a minute, but you discussed about reconciliation between the claim prices and how that is really an actuarial question. But is there any light you can shed on the process of calculating the capitated amount, what you needed to take into consideration, what you as a provider had to offer, and what you were receiving from your payer partner. Yeah, there's a there's a, a very, very, very complicated process of that, which involves what we call the delineation of financial responsibility. We lovingly call it the DOFER. <laughs> and what that really entails is what is our responsibility as the medical group? What is your responsibility as the health plan? What is under capitation? What is not under capitation? And what's not under capitation, we commonly refer to as carve-outs. And how does that all work? The other piece of it that you have to keep in mind is clauses within the contract that allude to what we call stop loss, which is basically at what level of claim for a given incident or for a time period does the risk to the medical group end And then there's a secondary insurance of some kind that is kind of the fail-safe for that. It's like reinsurance, they call it. So all of those negotiations need to be part of it. It's not uncommon to exclude transplants, which are very expensive procedures. It's not uncommon to exclude high-cost injectable medications. It's not uncommon to exclude pharmacy from the benefit package that is part of the capitation. So those are areas that you do need to explore very, very deeply with your payer to determine where that responsibility will lie. Makes sense. Okay. So, you know, speaking of the payer and and that relationship, I know that it can be a bit fraught, especially with these complicated arrangements. And so what are some of the collaboration challenges that you ran into and how did you navigate those? Yeah, you know, I think it's probably fairly obvious. It's it's all about communication. It's also about transparency. Mm-hmm. And I think that with the Medicaid population, because of the requirement for transparency with Medicaid plans, it's less of an issue than it may be perhaps with some of our commercial partners. Uh, although I will say that that transparency is improving greatly on the commercial side as well. But I think it's regular cadence of assuring that you have all the categories covered. You have clinical operations meetings so that you're talking about difficult cases and how you can collaborate to assure high quality and and lower cost of care. It's about finance to make sure that whenever there are any discrepancies and reconciliation of CAP or fee-for-service carve-outs that you're talking about that and making sure that you understand it and you're creating policy to reduce any redundancies. The other piece, which is you know a little more right brain, but I think actually is extremely important, is assuring that you're aligned philosophically and strategically with your payer. We do a lot of really 
nice things with our payer for Medicaid here in Orange County that are not around this capitation arrangement, but are more around doing good things for kids. Mm -hmm. And I think that it creates a partnership, an alignment, a trust level that allows us to be more successful in this capitation arrangement. You've named a couple of things here, but going a little bit more specific, are there any strategies you could share about communicating well and working together to facilitate, you know, affordable, high quality care for patients? Yeah, absolutely. We all love meetings uh, and we're all living, you know, in the Zoom world, but honestly, it's about a regular cadence of meetings with the right people in the room and the right data to review and the right goals and objectives that are aligned with that to uh, keep everybody honest, so to speak. And I mean that in a positive way. So we have regular, what we call joint operating committee meetings, JOCs with our payer. Uh, We have regular quality meetings with them. We have regular finance meetings with them. We have, you know, probably four or five monthly meetings that are on a cadence where we we review specific data and uh, have specific agendas to assure that we're on the same page. And I strongly, strongly recommend that rather than it being ad hoc or after the fact. That way you can be proactive. Mm. That makes sense. And and zooming out for a second here, because we, we talked about this a little while back in the conversation, but going back to that question of cultural change and implementing it on a, on a higher level as well, is there anything that you would like to say to just creating an environment on an industry level that is more amenable to this kind of arrangement, this sort of high risk, very collaborative kind of arrangement? Yeah, you know, I I think it comes back to trust and transparency. I think that, you know, we are all in the same game and we, we all have slightly different agendas for sure, but we're all in the same game. And that game is we have, uh, we have a group of patients that need to be seen and we have an amount of resources that are provided to see those patients. And if we don't work together to maximize those resources to provide the best care we can, we're not going to have a system mm-hmm. and you know we're going to create and we're going to talk about equity in a little while but we're going to create more of a have and have not type situation so i think it's really i i know this is pie in the sky and i and i play my pediatrician card a lot <laughs> but we have a responsibility as a healthcare community to be really good stewards of those resources understanding that we're trying to create the best care model that we can We're all familiar with the triple aim. I think everyone listening to this uh, podcast would be well aware of that and all the work of Don Berwick and, you know, Atul Gawande and and all our favorites. But, you know, when it comes right down to it, I kind of created my own triple aim, which I use when I teach residents at Chalk. And it's, you know, number one, every provider wants to provide good quality care for the person in front of them. There's no question. You know, we all, I assume positive intent. Everybody gets up in the morning trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Number two, and justifiably, we're all trying to earn a living. You know, every provider did a lot of schooling, probably incurred a lot of debt and puts in a lot of hours. But number three, we also want to go home at some point. <laughs> and I think to the quality of life issue, you know, that we're seeing a lot of the burnout issues and things like that today. I think it's incumbent upon us as, as a, a community of healthcare to really focus in those three areas. It's gotta be great quality. It's gotta be something where we can sustain it financially and we have to make it livable Mm -hmm. so that we have a healthcare community in the future to be able to provide this care. And I think that umbrella for me, when whether I'm talking to a frontline physician, a hospital administrator or a a health plan administrator seems to resonate pretty well with people. Mm 
-hmm. What we're trying to do this season is really highlight how each of these conversations ties back into health equity, how integral that is to every conversation happening in healthcare right now. So I I do want to bring that in here at at the end and just ask, what are some of the key ways that health equity should factor into the conversations that payers and providers are having related to payment models right now? Yeah, you know, Kelsey, particularly in the Medicaid population, it's all about health equity at this point. You know, we're all familiar with the bar graph where we look at, you know, 100% of what makes up a healthy person. And we all know now that, you know, 20% of it is what we as physicians do. And clearly, you know, 40% is your genetics and your environment and and 40% is the social factors around your life. And we are fortunately starting to see more emphasis on those social factors. And, And that emphasis, I think, will make a big difference. Any health plan, medical group relationship, and any contract today must have that at the forefront. So I think the managed care capitated model actually facilitates that because it is very challenging to get direct reimbursement for things like social services and care coordination. But in a capitated model where you are basically given a bucket of money here, take care of this population. If you are creating the right model as a medical group, you can parse out funding to be able to provide those social determinant services. And frankly, it's to your benefit as the medical group, because if you can reduce the stressors related to those social determinants, you're going to ultimately reduce the utilization of the population, which in, again, that capitated global payment environment makes you more successful. So I I think that it is without a doubt top of line for all negotiations, all discussions, to assure that you have those social services pieces in place. Along with that come some of the obvious things like translation services and, you know, promotora models, different models where you can relate to specific populations. Just real quickly, in our population in Orange County, we have a Vietnamese population, we have a Latinx population, a Korean population, and we literally have case managers and social workers that are um, part of that community to be able to connect with that community. And in a fee-for-service environment, that's not paid for, right? But in our globally capitated environment, we're able to allocate some of the funding to those services, which we know ultimately will pay off in the long run. Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for coming on today and for sharing from your experience and from Trox's experience and really great conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Kelsey. I appreciate it. Listeners, we would love to hear your insights on this topic as well. So if you have any thoughts that you'd like to share or any questions or topics that you think that we should cover in future episodes, please reach out to me at kwadill at intelligentmedia.com. That's K-W-A-D-D-I-L-L at intelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts. And also don't forget to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Thanks for listening. This has been an Intelligent Healthcare Media production. 